Welcome to Pricing Nature from the Yale Center for Business and the Environment and the Yale Carbon Charge. I'm Casey Pickett. Over the next few weeks, we'll be hearing from folks across the ideological spectrum about where they stand on carbon pricing policy and why. We'd like to get to know these guests a little better before we get to work unpacking their policy stances. Today, we'll focus on their stories about how they came to care about climate change. These are stories of science, stories of faith, stories of humility, stories of home. Thanks for joining us for this special episode of Pricing Nature. We hope you enjoy. So I'm Bob Inglis, and I run an outfit called RepublicEN.org. Bob Inglis is a former congressman from South Carolina. He served from 1993 to 1999, and then again from 2005 to 2011 for the Greenville-Spartanburg area. Today, he's executive director of RepublicEN.org, a conservative climate advocacy group. And I guess I should add that uh, I was six years in Congress saying that uh, climate change is nonsense. Bob shared with us his story of how he came to care about climate change. It happened in three parts. I had the opportunity to run for the same seat again in 2004. That year, my son came to me as he was voting for the first time, having just turned 18. And uh, he said to me, Dad, I'll vote for you, but you're going to clean up your act on the environment. Um, And so uh, that was the first step of a three-step metamorphosis. Uh, His four sisters agreed. His mother agreed. This is a new constituency. You know, these people can change the locks on the doors to your house. So you need to respond to that constituency. So that was step one. Step two was, and by the way, my son was going to vote for me no matter what, right? I mean, it wasn't in his economic interest to vote against me. You can lose by one vote. And he knew that we were literally mortgaging the farmette that we live on in order to run for Congress again. So he was going to vote for me no matter what. I think he was really saying, Dad, I love you. and You can be better than you were before. So how about be relevant to my future and your four daughters' futures? And so um, that was step one. Step two was going to an article with the Science Committee, the House Science Committee, and seeing the evidence in the ice core drillings. Ice core drillings are long tubes of ice glaciologists collect from polar ice sheets, ice caps, and mountain glaciers. They can analyze these tubes of ice to understand how Earth's air temperature and atmospheric composition have changed over hundreds of thousands of years. You can read more about these natural time capsules on our website. Back to you, Bob. And then step three was another science committee trip and something of a spiritual awakening, which seems unlikely on a godless science committee trip because we all know that all scientists are godless, uh, right? So apparently not because this um, Aussie climate scientist was showing me as we were snorkeling together the glories of the Great Barrier Reef And I could see that he was worshiping God and what he was showing me. St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. And so Scott, Scott Heron was uh, preaching the gospel. I could see it in his eyes. It was written all over his face. And his excitement about the creator behind that creation he was showing me. So later we had a chance to talk And uh, he told me about conservation changes he was making in his life in order to love God and love people. And, uh, you know, Scott rides his bike to work, does without air conditioning as much as possible in Townsville, Australia, a pretty hot place. Hangs the family's clothes out on the line. 
all to consciously love people coming after us. So I got right inspired. I wanted to be like Scott, who's now become a very dear friend, loving God and loving people. So I came home and introduced the Raise Wages Cut Carbon Act of 2009. That's a revenue-neutral, border-adjustable carbon tax. Uh, Note to self, probably not a good idea to introduce a carbon tax in the midst of Great Recession when you represent perhaps the most conservative district in the most conservative state in America. It didn't go well. After uh, 12 years in Congress in a Republican runoff, I got 29% of the vote, and the other guy got the other 71% of the vote. Um, It's a rather spectacular face plant, I should say. The Raise Wages Cut Carbon Act was Bob Inglis' own carbon pricing proposal in Congress. We'll hear more about it in our next episode, The Conservative Case for Carbon Pricing. For Bob Inglis, it took a mix of family, science, and faith to bring him around on climate action. He saw the effects of climate change on the Great Barrier Reef on the other side of the world. But for some, the effects of climate change are visible in their own backyard. Kira O'Brien is a young Alaskan conservative who co-founded Students for Carbon Dividends, or S4CD. Students for Carbon Dividends mobilizes young people across the political spectrum in favor of carbon tax policy that returns dividends directly to taxpayers. Kira went on to found Young Conservatives for Carbon Dividends, She told us the story of her own climate revelation. I grew up outdoors, uh, like hunting, fishing, hiking, and all that. Uh, And I grew up on the water on an island. Um, So definitely is easy to notice when something is off, and something is definitely off. Um, The climate is changing, humans are contributing, and it is definitely a large concern for me. Uh, One of the things that has stuck with me is the summer before I left for college, I uh, remember being outside looking at the water and the water had turned this bright Caribbean blue. Like the ocean in Alaska is usually like a steel gray, uh, but this particular, like it was about a week, it was Caribbean blue um, because of an algal bloom because it had been so warm recently. And that ended up creating a lot of problems for our ecosystem there. Uh, fishing is a huge industry where I'm from and it really threw off the balance and also just looked absolutely wrong. Seeing the effects of climate change close to home can be a potent motivator. And Kira is not the only conservative we spoke to who came to this issue out of concern for their community. Former Congressman Carlos Curbelo, who we heard from last episode, says he took action on climate change because of his vulnerable constituents, the people of South Florida. I'll say growing up in South Florida in the 80s and 90s, Really, most of us who grew up here uh, have a a pretty healthy, evolved environmental conscience. So we live between the ocean and the Everglades here. So from the time you're in third and fourth grade, you're you're already learning about this unique uh, ecosystem, especially the Everglades. And, you know, Everglades restoration, for example, is a bipartisan and just more than bipartisan. It's it's a consensus issue in, in the state of Florida. As a Floridian, the environment was always on Congressman Curbelo's radar. Support for the Everglades is nonpartisan in Florida, but climate change, as we've seen, carries different political baggage. Much as with Bob Inglis, scientists were able to raise Congressman Curbelo's level of concern. 
I didn't arrive in Congress uh, ignorant or, or not caring about the issue, but at the same time, it wasn't. Uh, I never thought it would be what I dedicated most of my time to, and, and it was not something that drove me uh, to run. However, early uh, during my time in Congress in 2015, I, I had a meeting with NOAA scientists. They came to my office. That's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And uh, they uh, showed me a very clear picture of what could happen to uh, my part of the world, uh, the district I represented, if uh, we didn't take global warming and greenhouse gas emissions seriously. And it was at that point where I realized, okay, this is not just an issue that I have to care about. This is an issue that I have to lead on. And I started uh, recruiting uh, fellow House Republicans. There were 247 of us at the time. It was the largest Republican majority since uh, the 1920s. And uh, I, I was troubled when I could find very few people, uh, maybe a handful, who were willing to talk about this issue, who were willing to work on it, uh, who were even willing to utter the words climate and change together in an audible voice. So uh, I realized we had a secondary problem or an additional problem uh, to to what the uh, NOAA scientists had told me, which is that uh, one political party was just completely absent when it came to, to this issue. Uh, so that uh, triggered um, an effort inside the Congress to start uh, closing that partisan divide. And uh, we established... Uh, I established together with uh, my colleague from uh, the Palm Beach area, Ted Deutsch, a Democrat, the House Climate Solutions Caucus, and that became the first ever internal organization in Congress to uh, address climate change in a bipartisan way. For Congressman Curbelo, caring about climate change came naturally after a presentation from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. But scientific analysis often has a high barrier to entry. It can be hard to communicate complex equations and models to lay audiences in a concise, digestible way. And most people don't have a team of scientists coming to their door to explain why climate change is a serious problem. When we talked to Jerry Taylor, he shared how he moved from being a climate skeptic to a proponent of climate action. Jerry Taylor was a senior fellow and vice president at the Cato Institute, where he describes his job as a warrior for climate change denial. In his words, he wrote climate skeptic talking points for a living. He thought he had a solid understanding of climate science, but a conversation with a frustrated physicist began to change his mind. One of the things that uh, was the first uh, incident that made me question uh, the narratives I was forwarding, uh, about a little bit more than a decade after James Hansen testified in front of the United States Senate in 1988, I was on television debating uh, Joe Rome, who is now at Center for American Progress, but you know he's a physicist who's been uh, active in the climate debate for a long time. And I was on TV and I said, you know, Joe, it's been more than a decade since James Hansen testified in 1988. During that testimony, he uh, offered projections about where temperatures were going to go if we continue down a business-as-usual path. We've been on a business-as-usual path since 1988, and if you look at his uh, temperature projections, we've only seen about a, th a quarter or a third of the warming that he says that should have occurred by now. And I said, no, what that tells me is that his models run hot, 
Uh, and that uh, while warming is, a, you know, or climate change is real and global warming is happening, uh, we can look at the data and see that it's not playing out as dramatically as uh, a lot of people in your community say it should have played out by now. And that suggests to me that climate change will be uh, far less of a disruptive event than uh, we're being told by, you know, uh, by, by people like you. So I went into the dressing room after, you know, afterwards, get demiked and get the makeup off. And Joe looked at me and says, did you even read Hanson's testimony or is this just stuff, you know, you make up? <laughs> and I said, no, I read his testimony a while back. And he says, all right, well, he said, do me a favor, go back and reread that testimony. He says, if you go back and reread that testimony, strictly speaking, what you're saying is correct, which is what's so maddening here. But the reason that uh, Hansen's temperature projections were off isn't the models run hot. It's that his, his, uh, his uh, in 1988, his projections about what uh, greenhouse gas emissions would look like were off. He, he thought there'd be a lot more greenhouse gas emissions than we've seen. And that's what drove those high temperature projections. He said, remember, Jerry, when he gave that testimony, that was before the Montreal Protocol was signed, which took a lot of greenhouse gases out of the economy. That was before major recessions. That was before uh, price declines in natural gas, which started uh, you know, playing out through the economy. Uh, and he said, so if you, if you look further in his testimony, Jerry, you'll find that he offered a couple of other scenarios as well with temperature projections. Uh, scenario A is the one you were talking about, which is off. Scenario B, and at the time of this debate, uh, would have been correct. He said, look, the scenario B that Hansen offers in his testimony in 1988 has, a, has an emissions portfolio uh, projection, which is, tracks pretty closely to what we've had since 1988. And he said, and he gave a temperature projection about what he thinks would happen under that sort of emissions uh, portfolio. And he said, Jerry, it's pretty much spot on. He says, so when you're telling me his models run hot, he said, it's just crap. I said, if you, if you look at his, his, temperature, his, his emission scenarios may, may be off because, look, he's a scientist, not an economist. These things are hard to predict. But uh, you're, you're being incredibly misrepresentative. So where the hell did you get that? Now, of course, now where I got it was uh, from uh, one of the uh, scientists I was working with who had recently given testimony in the United States Senate exactly to the, to the effect that I offered on television. And Joe said, look, you go back to your office when you leave here. You reread Hansen's testimony and you tell me I'm wrong. And he says, I, he said, or not, you know, just continue being the hack that you are. He said, but why I hate debating people like you on television is that the, the story I just gave you, I don't have five or ten minutes, you know, on TV here to walk viewers through this. And it's kind of sophisticated stuff. He said, so that's why I generally, you know, don't debate people like you. So I went back to my office and reread the testimony, and Joe was right as far as I could tell. And I went to the scientist that I've been working with who had just given testimony uh, that echoed what I had said on television. Uh, and I explained what, what had just happened. I said, so what am I missing here? And it turns out I wasn't missing anything. I mean, we had a, uh, about a half-hour conversation about it, and the scientist said, look, you know, I'm not— uh, James Hansen's attorney let him try to explain the discrepancy between his uh, temperature projections from business as usual, given what we've actually seen. Now, that was that was really remarkable to me because I, like many of us, look, I'm not a scientist. Uh, I was a uh, a gunslinger at the Cato Institute in this debate. I'm not stupid. I do read the literature and uh, read these studies, but I'm not a scientist. And you're deferring to expertise that you trust. And at that point, I discovered that I hadn't been doing near the due diligence I should be doing on the evidence that I was forwarding. And from that point forward, I made it a point to begin doing that because I did not want to sound ignorant or uh, uh, disingenuous on television.
the more I did that, the more I found a, that story that I just told you being played out over and over and over again. Or if it wasn't purposely misrepresentative or misleading, it would cherry pick data, uh, or it would. Uh, it turns out that the paper, which uh, looked fairly impressive, had never gone through peer review. Or uh, once I started digging into the reactions of the paper, I found that it gets shot full of holes by uh, anybody who takes any even even a casual look at it. Uh, and that's the the, the first sign I uh, received that I should maybe be reassessing where I was on this discussion. It's pretty remarkable to hear people's stories about doing a 180 on climate change. Jerry Taylor mentions he used to work for the Cato Institute. That's a think tank founded and funded by the Koch brothers, who are notorious for pumping hundreds of millions of dollars into anti-climate, pro-fossil fuel messaging and political efforts. They were the big money behind the Tea Party. But now, Jerry Taylor is president of the Niskanen Center, a new think tank that researches and advocates for market-oriented solutions to climate change, among other things. For most of our conservative guests, advocating for climate action has involved some evolution in thinking. Lots of minds changed, difficult conversations, and even career changes. Congressman Inglis says his climate leadership was a big part of why he lost his congressional seat. But there are interesting stories from our progressive guests, too. We spoke to two progressive activists about how the climate became the issue they fight for. For each of them, climate change is an issue of justice and human rights. My name is Saya Ameli Hajebi, and yeah, I've been uh, organizing with Sunrise for about a year now, and it's, it's been amazing. Saya Ameli Hajebi is a youth activist who was involved with the Sunrise Movement, which we heard about in episode four. Sunrise is a youth movement dedicated to halting climate change through political action. I've kind of always been very passionate about climate action. And um, in Iran, uh, where I lived for the majority of my life before moving here with my family about um, eight years ago, I was always struck by how the the government was always prosecuting people and kind of ma making it extremely difficult for people to voice their opinions. And to be an activist in Iran was a gamble between life and death. Um, however, when we moved here, I saw that it really is possible to try uh, to have a democracy and um, it is possible for the government to hear people out. Basically, when I um, started high school, I immediately joined this uh, environmental action club. And um, going in, uh, initially, I just thought that it was going to be, you know, a couple of high schoolers sitting around a table complaining about climate change. Um, and I didn't really expect to make any tangible change. The problem is, if you do sit around a table and you just talk about it, we don't get anything done. And I thought that, well, as a high schooler, we're, we're, we can't vote. And even though it is our future that is most at stake here, um, and it, it is us who are going to be kind of taking the brunt of climate change and the adverse effects of it, like we, I felt like we were powerless. But then I, I, I started to hear about Sunrise. It's a movement of young people basically taking the matter into our own hands. There is a lot of other climate movements that uh, kind of wait for legislation to be on the table 
um, for us to go and support it. What really set Sunrise apart for me was not only the fact that it was made up of people like me who were young and determined and passionate, but also that if there wasn't any legislation, if there wasn't any pledge saying that like politicians, for example, shouldn't be taking money from fossil fuels, well, we made that pledge and then we went to their office to ask them to sign it. As one of her first actions with Sunrise, Hajebi participated in a sit-in at the office of Robert DeLeo, the Speaker of the House for the Massachusetts Legislature. He'd been accepting money from the fossil fuel industry to fund his campaign, and... And we were quite disappointed because there was this amazing bill that was going through that would get us to 100% renewable energy by 2050 in Massachusetts. And um, when this bill reached his table, he watered it down and pushed that date to 2100. We would be well gone by then. And I I was shook. I thought that, well, politicians should be accountable to the people and they should um, listen to us all the time. And and here was uh, Robert Zilio taking money from fossil fuels and just kind of demolishing this bill. During the sit-in, the activists filed into DeLeo's office and shared their stories with his aides and office staff. I spoke about how um, my family came to the U.S. looking for the American dream, um, looking to kind of for, for our, you know, for our most basic rights of freedom of speech, clean air, clean water. I talked about how uh, my school kept getting canceled in Tehran because of pollution, and how really democracy has been this kind of life-changing thing that we, we really need to continue to uphold here. For Hajebi, climate activism is about fighting for environmental protections that guarantee clean air and clean water. But it's also about the importance of free expression, about exercising your right to shape the world to make your own future better. One last note on Saya Hajebi. When we finished our interview, I asked her what was next. Uh, back to class. <laughs> I think it's going to be Spanish, actually. I hadn't realized the spokesperson for the Sunrise Movement's New England chapter was a junior in high school. Our final guest, Kea Chatterjee, came to climate change from a strictly scientific perspective. But over time, her stance has shifted, and she now fights climate change as an issue of racial and economic justice. So my name is Kaya Chatterjee. I am the executive director of U.S. Climate Action Network. I uh, I started my career working at NASA um, headquarters here in uh, Washington, D.C., where I live. I started working on climate change when I worked there, and I was so alarmed about particularly the Arctic sea ice data that we were getting in at that time that I just changed my career and I started working as a climate communications program manager there at NASA. Um, And so made that transition, which is, you know, I think now kind of amusing people who work on 
on Arctic issues would be kind of amused that I was that alarm in 2002 because really like the floor fell out of Arctic sea ice maybe in 2012. And since then, it's just been a precipitous decline. Um, and then I, I moved from working at NASA. I sort of realized that, you know, having been trained as a, like an ecosystem scientist, that like that wasn't the kind of struggle I was in, that this was much more akin to my grandparents' participation in the Indian independence movement than anything that the scientific community had solved. And that actually this was a problem of... Uh, of injustice and power um, and who's wielding power over who and who's getting hurt by that oppression. So much of the root cause really is colonialism and and this rooting out of indigenous ways of living that were completely sustainable and into a sort of spread of a form of capitalism that has run so amok that we've destroyed our ability to have a stable climate and we have disturbed the climate of the the only planet we know of that can that can support life uh, the conditions under which humans evolved are different conditions to the ones we're now experiencing. And we did that uh, as human beings, and we did it through colonialism and capitalism and this you know, constant exploit of the planet. Chatterjee landed at the U.S. Climate Action Network, which is a group dedicated to coordinated political action around climate change. We'll hear more from both Saya Hejebi and Kaya Chatterjee in our final episode of the season, Carbon Pricing Through a Progressive Lens. Conversations, personal experiences, family stories, all have a role in how we think about climate change and how our thinking itself changes. People change their minds. Asking a friend or even an acquaintance to look again at the facts or to listen to your story or to tell you their story, that can result in a person shifting from climate skepticism to climate action or from light engagement on climate to boldness. We hope these stories help you think about why the climate matters to you. As we deal with and hopefully emerge from pandemic times, you know, when we can have friends again, we'll be looking for ways to reconnect to each other and to the wider world. Climate conversations can be a twofer in that way. Let's talk to people who see things differently, with civility and humanity, to get to work solving the big problems. In our next episode, we'll hear more from our conservative guests as we uncover the conservative case for carbon pricing. Then in our final episode of the season, we'll talk to progressives about where they stand on carbon pricing policy. Thanks for joining us. This is Pricing Nature. If you like what you're hearing, don't forget to... Rate, rate, review, like, and subscribe. That's too serious, guys. <laughs> not, not sad. Rate and review, like, and subscribe. On your listening platform of choice. Share these episodes with your friends and family, and be sure to check out our website, pricingnature.substack.com, for extra materials. Extra materials are amazing. Yeah. This episode was written by Jacob Miller, with help from Casey Pickett, Maria Jong, and Naomi Schimberg. Special thanks to the Carbon Pricing Leadership Coalition for their partnership. Sound engineering by Jacob Miller. Original music by Katie Sawicki. And a final thanks to Ryan McAvoy, 
Stuart DeCue, and Heather Fitzgerald for making this episode possible. <laughs>